The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we look at how technologies like digital scanning and artificial intelligence or AI are being used to create facsimiles of historic paintings. So can new tech recreate the hand of an old master? Also this week I speak to Sophie Matisse, the great-granddaughter of Henri, about following in his and her great-grandmother Amélie's footsteps for a new BBC film. And in a slight twist on our Lonely Work series, the painter Lisa Uscavage tells us about missing the Great Van Eyck exhibition in Ghent because of the coronavirus. Before we go any further, just a reminder that you can sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link's at the top right of the page. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, Art Market Eye, the latest of which is just out. Now, today and across this weekend, a series of discussions on new technologies and the preservation of cultural heritage can be seen live and free at the Art Newspaper's YouTube channel. Organised by the Art Newspaper and the Factum Foundation, along with our Italian sister paper, Il Giornale dell'Arte, they'll bring together museum directors, AI specialists, writers, professors of science and architecture theory and other thinkers to discuss what can be done with digital technology now and in the future. The discussions will consider, but go far beyond the question, if an object can be reproduced exactly, which has the aura, the original or the facsimile? The discussions will cover all manner of forms of cultural heritage, but here on the podcast we're going to look up close at one area, facsimiles of old master paintings. The founder of the Factum Foundation, who've led the field in digital approaches to cultural heritage, is Adam Lowe, and he spoke to me from the Factum HQ in Madrid. Adam, I'd like to begin with a very simple question. Why make a facsimile of a painting? Well, I, it's not really a very simple question. It's one of those things that many, many years ago, uh, I remember going to see the Genius of Venice exhibition uh, at the Royal Academy, full of amazing paintings. And every painter I knew was focused on Titian's flaying of Marcius. Uh, and really, after a lot of... Uh, Research. I found it was the only painting in the exhibition with no significant restoration history. So my interest became, what was it that changed um, when uh, a painting is restored, how it's cared for, how it's treated, what happens to it over time? How does its surface change? And perhaps originality is really a very dynamic process that reflects how we engage with objects, how we care for them, how we think about them. Um, And at that time, this was back in the early 80s, I started wanting to record the surface of paintings. And really what we've done ever since then, or what I've done ever since then, and then since uh, 2000, I've been doing it with the growing team at Factum, is to use all the available technologies uh, to record the surface of uh, paintings, but really of all objects, so from tombs in the Valley of the Kings um, to maps in the Bodleian to a whole variety of different things that um, in many ways one wouldn't think the surface was necessarily important. But the surface has increasingly been realising 
more and more levels that help us understand and rethink these objects. And as the technologies become available, we've been using them in more and more complex ways to make more and more accurate facsimiles. Until last year, we were able to do what I've wanted to do for quite a long time, which is to put an original and a facsimile side by side and ask the public if they can tell the difference. What was that work? Well, that work was an exhibition at Wadston Manor Um, that was an exhibition called Madame de Pompadour in the Frame. Um, uh, It's a a complex narrative about a a frame that had remained at Wadston Manor that once held a painting that's now in the Altepinakoteca in Munich. Um, And the question was how these got separated. But while we were doing the recording work uh, and in conversations with Lord Rothschild, it became uh, clear there was a second sketch uh, of Madame de Pompadour that they had at Wadston Manor in an 18th century frame. And so we thought it could be a great idea to raise the whole awareness and to make people think about the objects that they were looking at, to put a facsimile of the sketch in a facsimile of the frame, next to the sketch in its frame. So when you go into the uh, exhibition, you're asked to question and to look and to say, which is which? Well, I mean, fortunately, they are exceptionally close. And I think about half the people get it right and about half the people get it wrong. Slightly more, slightly less, slightly depending on knowledge, but not always. Because then you start to get into the second level where you think you're being tricked. So you assume the person tricking is trying to play a game. But really, this isn't about trickery. This is about truth. So many people always say, oh, you know, Adam, why why does factum uh, make fakes? And I always say, no, no, it's not about falsification. The whole work we're doing uh, is a project that's really about verification. It's about understanding things more deeply on more levels. I mean, that idea of increasing the visibility of a work through facsimile is really interesting because I suppose a lot of the time when one thinks about reproducing heritage, one thinks about replacing the lost but in terms of the paintings you're in in a way you're amplifying the paintings aren't you well I I think the word copy comes from the idea of copiousness and as we've seen in a way uh, throughout art history things that aren't copied tend to be overlooked things that aren't studied and it was only relatively recently in the 20th century that the idea of a copy somehow became negative I mean, if you look at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the first museum founded within the era of photography, where plaster casts and copies and photographs were all part of a mission that Henry Cole had to educate, to inform, to improve design, to increase knowledge, to increase the quality of life through uh, increasing our understanding about the objects that we live with. Let's talk about one particular example, because I think it's a, you write about it with Bruno Latour in an, in an essay. It actually first appeared in 2011, but it's reproduced in this new book that you've done, which is full of extraordinary essays, very many of them. Um, but it still has a, a, a real currency. But the example in that book is The Wedding at Cana, this, this great Veronese that was first made for the refectory in the San Giorgio Monastery in Venice and then was taken from Venice by Napoleon to Paris, where it remains and you make very compelling case for why that facsimile had a very 
significant impact versus the original. Can you talk us through that? My love and fascination with uh, the Veronese painting uh, uh, on San Giorgio in the refectory is that this was a painting done in dialogue with one of the great architects of the time, uh, Palladio. So Veronese and Palladio are really uh, fighting it out, one on canvas and the other in space. When Napoleon's soldiers cut this painting from the wall and took it to Paris, uh, obviously it incurred heavy damage while it was rolled and moved um, it then uh, was put back together. It's been restored several times since. It hangs on this sort of uh, strange, um, sort of uh, irregular brown wall between two doors uh, in a gold frame with a strong zenithal light. And while it's undeniably the, or mainly the original canvas that Veronese and his team painted, it isn't... Uh, something that's fixed and and it doesn't just stop in time and when we put the um, uh, facsimile back into its original space um, I confess I was uh, unbelievably nervous because Venice is one of those cities where its culture is part of its lifeblood and the Italians know their culture extraordinarily well and um, you know nobody wants to see Venice filled with fakes so there was this whole dialogue. But, of course, the horses on the front of St. Mark's um, uh, are copies, and the Campanile is a copy of itself. And the uh, Veronese, when it went back in, uh, provoked this extraordinarily emotional uh, feeling amongst the people who were there, because for the first time in, in over 200 years, you could see the painting in the environment that it was painted for. You could see it illuminated with the light it was tented, in, intended to be seen in. You could see it without its frame. Uh, you could see it at the right height. And the extraordinary moment was that really, while the facsimile is obviously not the original, somehow it gained a level of authenticity. And in the whole dialogue, so the book you mentioned earlier is called The Aura in the Age of Digital Materiality. And one of the things that Walter Benjamin fought to do or, or, or framed that has become ingrained in our understanding of culture is that an original somehow has an aura that you pick up. But the aura and the authentic are deeply linked. And in this case, the authentic had moved to... Uh, uh, back to its original location on San Giorgio, while the aura remained with the original painting in the Louvre. And I think this was a moment that set me and many others thinking about what technology could deliver. I'd like to go back to the essay that you wrote with Bruno, because it's really interesting that you compare the act of making a facsimile to the act of restoring an original work so and the, the example you give is the ambassadors by Holbein in the National Gallery and you say that in a sense the facsimile is 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 showing more respect for the original than that invasive if you like process of restoring a work of art because 
they too were basing a lot of the retouching on photographs. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it's not a criticism of restoration. We all know that restoration and preserving objects is a very important part of their life. And I think uh, there's absolutely uh, no criticism. But where we are now is we're in an age where we can, in a way, uh, separate Uh, this sense of study, this sense of looking carefully, this sense of digital recording, um, of analysis, of trying things out. And I worry a little bit about turning paintings into reproductions of themselves because every uh, act that's imposed on the surface does have a lasting effect. And so we started talking about... Um, the genius of Venice and recording the surface of paintings. And until recently, uh, there were very few museums, if any, recording the surface of their paintings as they were being restored. So now the Rijksmuseum does great work studying and recording. Uh, The National Gallery in London does great work recording the surface of paintings as they're being restored. But very few people, even though the technology is there to do it, So people started doing x-rays, infrared, ultraviolet photography. So as technologies become available, they get incorporated into the the methods that go along with uh, preserving things. And um, I would argue very strongly uh, that before you act on an original, there needs to be extended periods of negotiation, of recording, uh, of of thinking about it, of even trying it out on a facsimile to see if it's adding something or not. So uh, I believe in preservation and I think there are many, many uh, uh, aspects to how you preserve. Indeed. Tell me about the kind of surface that you reproduce in the facsimiles because we're not looking at this sort of utterly pristine flat surface are you because that's that's the key you talk about surface detail about the the way that you capture the surface of those things that you scan and that is absolutely vital in terms of creating something which looks resembles the original canvas right if you take a sculpture a sculpture has a shape uh, but it also has a surface So uh, shape and surface uh, are wedded together. So most recordings that you see, most uh, plaster casts that are then finished by hand if you go to the Victoria and Albert Museum, that records shape very accurately, but it doesn't necessarily record surface. With new technologies, we're able to do both, and increasingly subtly. So um, if you think of the work we're doing in the Valley of the Kings, there we're recording painted low relief. Uh, We're looking both for the uh, uh, relief on the surface, but also the relief within the paint and the evidence of how it's aged, how it's flaked, how it's been pulled off by different people taking casts or whatever. When you're recording the surface of a painting, it's never totally flat. I mean, a painting and a sculpture, to me, have very similar qualities. One tends to be flatter with a surface and one tends to be in three dimension with a surface and a relief is somewhere in between. So what we're doing is we're um, uh, using different systems to record paintings. Uh, we, we, at the moment, mainly use a scanner that was designed by Manuel Frankelo, who's my partner, when we set Factum up. Um, who's an artist and an engineer, uh, and it's uh, still the dominant tool for recording the surface of paintings, although increasingly photogrammetry and uh, certain 
uh, uh, RTI and photometric uh, stereo methods are allowing us to get three-dimensional capture that will soon be even better. But recording subtle detail, we're talking down in microns, where, you know, sub-millimetric detail of the surface of a painting, where you can see every brushstroke and you can become aware of the uh, dynamic relief of the surface, how the paint's aged, how it's been applied, how the canvas has been relined, what happens when you reline it, etc. So there's many, many levels. Um, and for me, the excitement is that as you get advances in software that sit alongside the advances in recording, we can have machine learning, we can have artificial intelligence, uh, artificially intelligent systems that are basically analysing this relief. And our hope and our dream is that it won't be very long before uh, using a process of graph analysis, we can start to say, you know, that's dominantly the hand of one person that's dominantly the hand of another that's aged badly that's overlaid with different uh, uh, hands of different restorers but within a picture you can start to construct a narrative of who did what and how it was done and you're doing that right now aren't you with case western reserve university in cleveland you're actually analyzing el grecos and your hope is that through this combination of scanning and machine learning you will be able to distinguish the hand of el greco himself from the hand of his son in this case and other people in his workshop well i mean el greco for me is a kind of dream case and yes we've we're working with uh, the casa ducal de bedinatelli uh, that looks after the hospital of cardinal tavera uh, where El Greco painted some of his last paintings. Uh, and uh, here we have the baptism, which is still on site, which we know was partly painted by El Greco, partly by his son and partly by workshop assistants. We have the um, Annunciation that was cut in two and removed, uh, and we've now got permission. So we've recorded the baptism completely. Uh, we've now got permission from Banco Santander, who own the bottom part uh, of uh, the Annunciation, to record that. Uh, the top part of the Annunciation is in uh, the National Gallery in Athens. And obviously our aim will then be to record uh, the chorus of angels that's at the top of the Annunciation. Uh, and the final a painting from uh, the uh, the chapel on, in the hospital of Cardinal Tavera uh, is in the Met. Uh, so it's uh, often referred to as the opening of the fifth seal. It's one of the very last paintings. It's generally understood to be by the hand of, of El Greco. But if we can then record others, so there's a great crucifixion uh, by El Greco that's in uh, the, the uh, Museum of Fine Art in Cleveland and we have access to a copy of that painting produced possibly by El Greco, possibly by his workshop, possibly uh, uh, certainly directly close. And the two paintings are almost identical when you see them in photographs. Um, and if we can study those two, we'll start to have more and more data that will allow us to read very subtle aspects of the surface so just like people read handwriting and can say you know that's by so and so that's clearly a forgery um, uh, in this case we're not looking for forgeries particularly we're looking for um, 
whether we can link certain hand movements, certain dynamic autographic traits to one person rather than another. And again, I think this is the really exciting moment we're at in art history, where there's going to be an explosion of understanding that allows us to rewrite certain uh, assumptions, certain prejudices, certain uh, things that have been imposed upon paintings and to see them afresh. And before we get, I'll come back to the sort of assumptions, as it were. But one thing I'd like to focus on, it the mind boggles at the thought of trying to fathom how on earth machine learning is going to do this. Because you, you I know you're a painter, right? So um, painting has to do with so many different physical um parameters right so it's not just the what the length of the mark the the weight of the brush the the movement of the hand the the position where exactly where in the hand the brush is being held whether it's at the at the end of the brush or right at almost at the at the, at the um hair of the brush so how on earth can machines tell us this kind of information like it, it, it i'm just can't i can't fathom that well i i think the question's uh totally correct and very valid um there are so many parameters uh, that the more data we have, the more accurately we can analyse that data and the closer it will come to be meaningful. But we're absolutely not suggesting for one second that technology is somehow going to replace art historical knowledge or going to replace connoisseurship or going to replace historical evidence. It will be another tool that will sit alongside the things we have available, just like when infrared uh, technologies were used to record paintings, you could suddenly see underdrawing. And in the underdrawing, you could understand how the painting was made in a slightly different way. So this is another tool in the box. And, I mean, what I love is both the digital side, but also this magical moment of how 3D technologies, 3D output technologies, are starting to allow us to make a surface that... um, can actually have a close correspondence with the original side by side. And here we're working, um, well, we've been working with several, for several years with Osei. They developed photocopiers and then uh, in their uh, uh, workshops in Holland were working on elevated printing. Uh, so this is building a surface in five micron layers. So you can actually hold more information than we can currently record with our scanners. And it's this kind of challenge that we're constantly uh, uh, at the cutting edge, totally excited, thinking, I need more. Very sadly, it's still closed, but hopefully it'll be open soon. But the Raphael exhibition uh, that's at the Scuderia de Quirinale, um contains in it uh, a, an exact facsimile of one of um, the uh, cartoons of Raphael that are in the Queen's collection that hang in the V&A. Uh, so to actually make a facsimile and put it on show of one of the great Italian Renaissance paintings in Britain and put it on show back in Rome, where it's hanging alongside one of the tapestries. Uh, So this is the Sacrifice of Lystra. Um, And the two are side by side. Um, And, you know, it's got every pouncing mark. It's got all the colour. It's got the qualities of the colour. It's got every join of the piece of paper. And it's hanging at eye level. So for me, there, there are moments when sometimes a facsimile 
can reveal things to you in a way that you can't see it on museum display. There's a very brief essay in the book about the Raphael, and you 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 have in fact now scanned each of the seven cartoons haven't you the originals are so fragile that they have to hang at very low lux levels which means that light does not display them at their best they're behind glass etc so is your intention that maybe you'll be able to hang those facsimiles next to the originals or in a, in a room next to them so that so that people can appreciate them in the in in, in a way in the light in which Raphael would have made them well it, it's certainly my dream uh it is my intention and gradually the custodians of those pictures um, uh, are understanding how they can be displayed and how technology can help us understand them. So, yes, I really hope uh, that we're going to be able to make facsimiles of all seven. I mean, there's a brief essay in the book because all of the uh, work we do uh, is done in collaboration with the museums, and uh, the museum hasn't yet made all the data public, but I think when they do, it's going to prove that the V&A is really, you know, at uh, the top of its game. So in the way it began with photography, and it's going to be the first museum going public with a high-resolution three-dimensional and high-resolution photographic and infrared recordings of these great paintings. And I think it's this uh, pushing at the bounds of what technology can do, both to preserve uh, to help us preserve things, to help us get access to them, to help us share them in different contexts. For me, Raphael is the painter of our time. He's the man who took antiquity into the Renaissance, who civilised, who communicated, who rethought the broken sculptures, who added the arms to Laocoon, who was the great interior designer, who worked in a team of probably up to 50 people. And, you know, he died when he was 38. He was one of those people I'm just in awe of. And uh, uh, it's very sad that the exhibition uh, that opened... uh, just before the coronavirus on the 3rd of March uh, is yet to reopen, but hopefully it will very soon. So last question is about what, in a sense, this this series of discussions is really all about, which is this aura, the, the question of the aura and originality. And I, I suppose the way I'm... I, the thing I'm interested in is, let's say, I mean, you talked, you, you, you've obviously done this very high-profile facsimile of a Veronese, and Veronese is an artist who's the language of his brush his painterly language is so beautiful so controlled so extraordinary is the aura around it specifically in the, that very matter and the very way that that artist manipulates that matter and therefore how on earth can there be anything approximate to that aura as someone who feels very very strongly that paintings are really uh, an accumulation of physical evidence uh, extraordinarily complex accumulation of physical evidence um, Uh, I am totally aware that when we go to them, we're both projecting and engaging with and bringing all the philology that we might know, all the art history, uh, all the knowledge we have. But I I think we call the book The Aura in the Age of Digital Materiality. And in in terms of this uh, discussion session, we really want... 
people to question their own assumptions, to question their own prejudices. And perhaps the aura has become a block to uh, how we engage with objects. So part of the narrative that comes up in the text that Bruno and I wrote in 2010, that's a decade ago. So things move much slower than I'd like them to. And that was a text called The Migration of the Aura. Uh, where uh, there was some suspicion that the aura had migrated uh, to belong with the facsimile in the tranquility of uh, the restored refectory of Palladio. So the refectory itself has changed dramatically over time and the painting is now back in facsimile form. But the idea was, um, you know, the, mu- the muse used to inhabit the museum. And so the muse and the aura as two things on the edges of immateriality uh, maybe had migrated while the physical evidence itself remained at the Louvre. So I would never uh, say that the painting in the Louvre was less original uh, than uh, the facsimile uh, in the heavily restored refectory in Venice, but I might say it's the experience of seeing it there is perhaps less authentic. And I think it's in this uh, contradiction that there's a fantastic um, opportunity for a group of uh, former museum directors, current museum directors, thinkers, experts, people in different walks of life who can come together in a live discussion to really ask some pretty fundamental questions about where we want culture to go um, in the next post-coronavirus chapter. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and I hope the discussions are as stimulating as you're suggesting right now. Uh, I hope they will be. The discussion series New Technologies and the Preservation of Cultural Heritage begins today at 5pm UK, 6pm Central Europe and midday in the US on the Art Newspaper's YouTube channel. And the two further discussions are at the weekend at the same times and we'll be encouraging questions from viewers on the channel. If you're listening to us after the 3rd of May or you can't join us for the discussions live, you can watch it on YouTube whenever you like, of course. The first discussion is on the future of museums, exhibitions and the objects they display with the chair Charles Somerys-Smith, the former secretary and chief executive of the Royal Academy and participants including Marina Warner, the writer and Neil McGregor, the founding director of the Humboldt Forum and former director of the British Museum. The second discussion on Saturday the 2nd of May is the circulation of objects, the politics of recording, training, preserving and sharing, chaired by Simon Schaffer, a professor of the history of science at Cambridge University and featuring, among others, Hartwig Fisher, director of the British Museum and Bonnie Greer, the playwright, author and critic. The final discussion on the 3rd of May is called An Intimacy with the Physical World, New Technologies Generating New Knowledge, with the chair Ian Blatchford, Director and Chief Executive of the Science Museum Group, and participants including Brian Campwell-Smith, who's Professor of Artificial Intelligence and the Human at the University of Toronto, and Carol Mandel, Dean Emerita of New York University Libraries. The book we discussed, The Aura in the Age of Digital Materiality, is available at factum-arte.com. And you can read the articles from our Art and Tech special, including an article on Factum Arte at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. 
Now, in a new film by Hugo McGregor for BBC Two, Sophie Matisse, the artist and great-granddaughter of Henri Matisse, takes a trip from her home in New York to France to follow in his and her other ancestors' footsteps in the surprisingly turbulent early years in the 1890s and early 1900s. Turbulent both in terms of his career and in his family life with his wife Amélie and their children. Among the many places she visits, Sophie goes to the family home in Boin in northwestern France where Matisse grew up and became an unpromising lawyer before giving it all up for art. She also goes to Paris and the apartment where he made the early paintings of Notre Dame and to Collioure, close to the Spanish border in the southwest of France where Matisse and André Durin made a breakthrough in the world of high colour that would prompt critics to call them the fauves or wild beasts. It was a period when Matisse met with familial disapproval, critical mockery and establishment scorn, in which the children faced life-threatening illnesses and in which Emily's family met with society scandal in the Humbert saga, an internationally famous fraud case. The family, and particularly Amélie and Marguerite, Matisse's daughter from another relationship who Amélie adopted, emerge as the indefatigable heroes behind the artist's work. Sophie is now back in New York and I spoke to her there about the film and her memories of her family, including her granddad, Pierre Matisse, Henri and Emily's second son and one of the great New York dealers of the interwar period. Sophie, Hugo McGregor's film is very much, of course, about Henri Matisse, the great artist, but it's also very much a portrait of his family. Was that sort of part of the original plan? Hugo approached me with his idea... And, but it was really, initially, the idea was that I would be a, a sort of a vehicle for retracing uh, Matisse's steps, and being a family member would provide people with a, a very unique sense of connection. And so this, I think, is very true, um, is, is a nice opportunity to take advantage of, because I do think it's it's wonderful to bring Matisse closer to people as he hasn't been represented before, um, quite like Hugo has represented him. And the idea of bringing the family more in, I felt for me, maybe this is not how Hugo feels or felt, but uh, was something that sort of developed uh, naturally during the film. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe he, f- maybe he f- felt this from the very beginning, but for me, it sort of seemed like a very natural occurrence that grew during the making of the film. Can you say something about that? Because you very much go on a journey, don't you? You follow those locations from Boin to, right the way to, to Collioure, the great the, the great moment of revelation in the south of France where he suddenly unleashes the, his colour. And, and, and there's, it, there's, there's, it's very much the sense that you're following in his footsteps, but following in in the family's footsteps, as it were. Yes, absolutely. It's very interesting because it was, um, yeah, to the whole experience of going into the house and visiting parts of the house and sort of imagining what it must have been like and his having to come back to the house after with his three young kids after the Humbert uh, fiasco um, was really... um, quite an eye-opener and it was just very very special and there were just sort of you know you you're in your day and age and you're kind of conscious of what day it is and what year it is and all that but there are flickering moments when you know you could be in a sense uh in a different time in history and those moments were sort of flickering in and out of of the journey that I was on essentially and so that was that was very unique and very um very powerful for me to to have a 
an even greater understanding and connection with um, with everything of Matisse and the family and my own family. My grandfather, for instance, my father is really just a huge eye opener for me. There's a wonderful moment where you go into the attic room under the eaves, where which which apart from some rather odd wallpaper is essentially the very same room that Matisse painted so memorably very early in his career that was that was a very moving part of the film I thought yeah it was it was really crazy for me because that happened to be a painting that I hooked onto as a teenager as being one of my favorite paintings that I really felt a connection to and I thought at the time it was because it was just an empty room, essentially, with an, with an easel and, and, and a chair. And that was something that I fantasized about a lot. I just, in my way, I just wanted to, I wanted that for me, too. All I wanted was to be kind of just doing my own thing, just with a, a simple existence like that. And also the, the fact that the roof has been kind of, uh, lowered down like that it gives, it gives a sense of there's a weight somehow associated with that flatness instead of it you know being a real triangle and so I, I connected with that sense also the sort of pressure of life and the pressure of my life especially being an artist with a name like that so and the window also just I mean that was a that was a real kind of interesting observation that the window just seemed so far away and the pressure of the room was so prominent somehow so all of these different emotional feelings observations as an artist as a person um emotionally um was all very um very powerful i never ever imagined i'd go see that i'd be in that real in that actual room ever in my life and so that was just mind-blowing i'm sure um one of the things that the film does very effectively i think is a, is smashed to pieces a myth about matisse that he's an artist of easy feeling of uh, gentleness a decorative artist an artist of leisure i, I suppose that his his early life was fr- i mean in fact his whole life if you read hillary sperling's biography his his whole it was fraught with anxiety he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't just a, a painter of the comfortable armchair was he by all accounts he was exactly the opposite of the painter in the comfortable armchair and i think that's why he he really it was like an itch he couldn't scratch i mean he just that's what he was really wanting for his paintings to do for people when they saw his work would be a kind of, uh, you know, they could sit in their comfortable, hopefully, armchairs, look at a painting of his and feel a sense of relief or, or a tr- transporting effect um, if they've had a hard day or something. But I think also, I mean, what he was driving at, whether he knew it or not, was he knew that colors had an effect on people. He was feeling a very visceral effect from from the experience of seeing color. And I think he wanted to share this with people uh, and to bring this into people's lives. So that was part of that was part of the thing. He wanted people to feel the kind of magic that he felt through color and um, to get a sense of... Uh, a kind of sense of peace or healing or whatever the positive thing he was getting, he wanted people to know about it. 
There's a really poignant moment in the film where you meet with the great niece of André Durin, Genevieve Tayad, and you're standing there in the very spot that, that Matisse and Durin were working on the rocks near Collioure, and where Matisse made that remarkable painting La Japonaise, which is an incredible portrait of Amélie. And it's obviously a really uh, moving moment, but it's so powerful to watch because it's you know it's two descendants of those great artists who were completely out on a limb in southwestern france at the time tell me about that well that was a that was a very emotion obviously <laughs> see in the film it was a very emotional moment because to be in that same spot and to think of amelie as being one of the major pillars of support for matisse during that very risky Moment. I mean, that was a very short time where it was either going to be yes or no to him making art for the rest of his life. Um, I think that's how they both felt, and I think Matisse was pretty desperate at that moment to have something work. He really had to dig into his soul and take the and take the risk. And and if she, and if she wasn't there, there's no guarantee he would have he would have had the support to do that. You know, he could have just hung it up and um, decided to just do something else. So to to have that come home emotionally, that was pretty pretty powerful. And to think of, you know, Amelie as, as I mean, she was really connected um, to him in a very, very deep way and enough to carry him through that moment where he could almost just kind of let go of everything else in his life to focus on this one kind of last effort approach um, that he was so desperate to connect with. And it was all the family as well, wasn't it? I mean, it was, it was yes, Amelie was the, was the leader of that family and she was obviously hugely instrumental in Matisse being able to make these paintings. But you talk about the moment where Marguerite was scrubbing the paintings which she didn't want to sell anymore. Yeah, exactly. But these were paintings that uh, Matisse had made for the purpose of selling. And when you make a painting for the purpose of selling, there's something that happens to the painting. And he knew it and he felt it. You know, when you feel something that is just not right, it's very hard to live with because it's, it's in your gut. You know, he was interested in telling the truth in his efforts, in his artistic efforts. So those paintings had to be, he just, it made him sick to make paintings like that. So that was why they had to scrub them off. And of course, and, and of course, it's heartbreaking and and all of that. But I'm sure he wasn't a really good sleeper in any part of his life. But it probably helped in some way to get rid of those because you do see some of the paintings that he made. There are still some samples at the Musée Matisse in the north um, in Le Cateau where you see the um, some of those paintings that were done to sell, essentially make a little dough on the side or. Any, in any way possible and they don't um, you can tell they're, they're kind of dead they just they don't have that magic in them that a lot of the other ones do you mentioned the, the Humbert scandal which was this scandal that tore apart 
Amelie's family. And that was in a way where Matisse showed his support for Amelie and stepped in and was of enormous help. So that Amelie's belief in Matisse was matched by his total commitment to her. There's, that, that trust is so central to both of their lives in this period that you're exploring. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think it must have been a real profound event in Matisse's life to be accepted in the way that he was from not only not only Amelie but from Amelie's parents. I mean, he essentially was completely accepted into their lives, even with the his Marguerite illegitimate child, his failing uh, efforts as an artist, and they took him, and it was unconditional. And I'm not so sure if he had had that kind of experience before in his life of being accepted unconditionally like that. So when he realized during the Humbert affair that, you know, well, he did have a little education as a lawyer's assistant or whatever, notaire, whatever all that is, it was his opportunity to to express some gratitude um, and to give back. So that was... That was something that I learned. Um, that was very powerful. That was really very beautiful. It's not a spoiler to say this at the end, that, that at the end of the film, <laughs> there's a really marvellous moment when you're looking at that very defiant self-portrait. Tell us what you, what you think he's saying in that picture. <laughs> I think, I, well, A, I think I said it pretty well in the film. But, yeah, I mean, that is, uh, that is a defiant stance, is that, you know, he's been through hell to get to where he managed to make it at that point, and he knew um, that that wasn't going to change, that he had what it took to continue. And I think uh, he felt such a connection to that that he was able to just um, announce that to the world via that particular portrait. He was here to stay, so to speak, in, in more ways than anybody could ever imagine at the time. I'd like to ask you about your grandfather, Pierre Matisse. Because his father was one of the greatest artists of all time, it's, it's in some ways been diminished what he achieved as, a, as an art dealer in New York. Can you tell us, tell us more about, about Pierre's achievements and the artists he worked with? Yeah, um, he started his gallery... Uh, <laughs> Uh, in New York because he had to come to New York um, because of family issues. He did have a real connection um, to artists and he had a real connection to support artists. It would have been so different if he didn't have his father as an artist. I mean, he really, he was the protector of artists and he had a real eye for somehow seeing what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And he really established himself um, like a solid rock in New York. I mean, he's, you know, quite famous uh, for his gallery. And uh, we had a great connection. I really, um, I was very fortunate to have um, as much time with him as I did. And did you meet lots of artists? I can imagine you must have been, you know, yourself an artist. You must have memories of meeting great artists as a child, for instance. Um, Yes and no. I mean... We didn't grow up 
seeing Pierre a whole lot. He was in New York in the south of France. We were in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, you know, going to visit Pierre was, Pierre and Tana, was not always an easy thing. I mean, you had to, like, be really on your very top, tippity top best behavior. And there was not much wiggle room to relax. So that was kind of, and, you know, he was, I mean, we'd go to the gallery to see the gallery, but it's just like, you know, there was so much energy being spent on being careful to say the right thing and all of that because he was not a big talker and uh, you had to do everything. There was only one way to behave and you had to figure out how that was and so on and so forth. But later on, I mean, when I started living more in France, our relationship grew and into something a little more relaxed, thank God. And uh, we talked about plenty of things, but we didn't really talk a lot about his dad. We didn't really talk about Matisse. I mean, my brother um, made the unfortunate <laughs> error, naive error, and he was just trying to get Pierre to, to talk a little at table, and he didn't know what to say. So he, so he asked him a question about his father, and thinking that, oh, that'll spark up a conversation. But um, Pierre abruptly said, well, why don't you go read a book <laughs> about Matisse? Why don't you go pick up a Matisse book and stop bothering me with your questions? But it was it was kind of tough. But but we did. We talked a little, but I don't know. There was It wasn't like you, how you might imagine hanging out with artists in their studios and stuff like that. You know, he'd see his artists. That was his thing between him. I tried. I once did try to get in on a visit to go see Baltus, but uh, <laughs> I was not successful. Uh, he went to. He went on his own. So okay. I did try, but whatever. It's it's intriguing uh, though. To you mentioned earlier in our conversation today about about you know being being called Matisse as an artist and obviously there are certain advantages to that but also it must be something of a millstone to be to, to have that name as well in terms of your own originality can you tell me how you've grappled with that yeah how i grappling with that is uh, probably more accurate but yeah i mean that's a that's either going to be a lifelong struggle or something hopefully to kind of move on from because it takes up a lot of room and life is not necessarily as long as we might think it is. So my, um, my goal now is to really focus in on what it is I want to be talking about in my art. What is at the heart of it all? Matisse would have said the same thing. Stick to where your gut is, where your heart is on something, and, and the rest, just put it aside. And what about right now? Because obviously we're all in lockdown, we're in self-isolation. Is that normal for you as an artist? Or, or how does, how does, how's your life shifted as an artist in the, in the, in the recent weeks? Yeah, not. I mean, I do work from home my studio now is in my home so um it doesn't really make a huge change um so to speak so i just try to use my days um because i don't know why but it seems like the days go by very quickly and so i i'm just like before you know it it's the afternoon and then before you know it it's early evening and then it's dinner time and then you know it's just so crazy i'm trying to get up earlier every day so that I can um, have some time to get some work done. 
it sounds ridiculous, but um, maybe because it is. <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's a curious kind of time shift, and you just feel that there is a lot happening in the world in terms of this coronavirus uh, situation, and it is it's troubling. It's kind of deeply troubling in in some ways, and then it'll be also super interesting to see what what we take from it after when we sort of shift into a into um into our next era i guess i don't even know i can't really go back to how we were but um whatever's next sophie thank you so much for joining us on the podcast oh absolutely it's my pleasure Becoming Matisse is on BBC iPlayer in the UK and it's part of BBC Arts Culture in Quarantine initiative, giving audiences access to the arts at a time of national lockdown. Among the other programmes is a new documentary about the photographer and leading figure in the interwar art world, Lee Miller, broadcast on Saturday the 2nd of May on BBC Two at 10.30pm and then on the iPlayer. Coming up, we talk to Lisa Uscavage about Van Eyck, but first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. Galleries around the world are expecting to lose an average of 72% of their annual revenue due to the COVID-19 pandemic, according to a new survey by the art newspaper and the economist Rachel Pownall, a professor of finance at the University of Maastricht, who appeared a few weeks ago on this podcast. However, dealers' outlooks vary from region to region. Those in the UK have the bleakest view, forecasting the highest drop in their financial activity at 79%, followed by Asia at 77%, North America at 71%, and the rest of Europe at 66%. The survey, carried out between the 10th and 20th of April, when much of the world was under lockdown, tracked the impact of the pandemic on 236 international art and antiques dealers and galleries. Around a third of galleries globally, 33.9%, do not expect to survive the crisis, the survey also found. Some good news, museums continue to reopen in various parts of the world. In Belgium, the Royal Museums of Fine Arts in Brussels will reopen gradually, with the Old Masters Museum planning to open on Tuesday the 19th of May, with tight restrictions. Meanwhile, the Italian Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, has outlined lockdown easing measures which include reopening museums, cultural venues and libraries on the 18th of May, again with strict rules. Galleries and small museums in France could reopen from the 11th of May. Meanwhile, in Beijing, which has had a stricter partial lockdown than other Chinese cities, the Red Brick Art Museum opened its doors on Thursday the 30th of April, and state museums, including the Palace Museum, the National Museum of China and the National Art Museum of China, opened today, the 1st of May. And finally, new sales initiatives continue to launch online. House and Worth launched its Art Lab initiative with a new virtual reality exhibition modelling tool called HWVR. The first virtual exhibition takes place on the site of its future gallery, House and Worth Menorca, ahead of its real-world opening in 2021. And Sotheby's has introduced Gallery Network, a marketplace for galleries with individual viewing rooms for a series of gallery partners, including Lehman Morpin, Spironi Westwater and Jack Shaneman. Users won't be directed to the gallery to make a purchase and instead will buy the offered works directly through Sotheby's. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com on the app and in the May print edition. You can subscribe at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As collectors and art lovers look online to browse and purchase, Christie's has responded to the current climate with an expanded online-only auction calendar that includes working from home, prints and multiples. 
The sale of over 70 lots features additions from iconic post-war contemporary and modern masters. You can channel energies from Henri Matisse's lithographs and his studies of odalisque and the human form, all created indoors. The refreshed online-only schedule complements Christie's private sales offerings. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, the latest in our series, Lonely Works, is slightly different. Rather than choosing to talk about a work she misses in a museum closed because of the coronavirus, the artist Lisa Yuskavage has chosen to lament the closure of an exhibition that she'd bought tickets for, but never got to see because of COVID-19. That show was Van Eyck, an optical revolution at the Museum for Schöne Kunsten in Ghent in Belgium, a show greeted with rapturous critical acclaim when it opened in February. It was announced this week that the show would not be extended, even though, as we heard, some of Belgium's museums and galleries are beginning to open in the coming weeks. The museum said that it was aiming to refund ticket holders like Lisa, possibly through an insurance payout that could total more than 3.5 million euros. Lisa talked to us on the line from her studio in New York. So, Lisa, this series is called Lonely Works, but actually, in a way, this the, you're thinking about an entire exhibition of works, aren't you? Yes, yes. The um, Jan van Eyck show at Ghent that um, my colleague at David's Warner during a dinner uh, was talking about, that it was a once-in-several-lifetime um, exhibition, which totally piqued my interest. And his wife very kindly offered to have us as guests, which I just love the idea of getting to know um, a new town. Of course, they're in Antwerp, but it's like all of the art that is in that area is something I'm very curious about. I just love the idea of you know going to um, a location where art was made and seeing the art in situ and kind of being able to have an experience of the language and the food, I mean, obviously it's not the same, but it gives me so much insight. Um, and the trip the trip was planned and we had wonderful restaurants planned and it's, you know, it's it, it, I'm not going to cry too big um, tears about it because there have been such tragic losses. Even in my own family, we've lost someone to COVID and hopefully that will be the only person but um, we have just a lot more to worry about than the fact that I didn't see the show but it is it was a it was rather sad to me that I didn't make it there sooner and um, but I guess if I'd made it there sooner maybe I would have contracted COVID on the airplane because apparently it was in our world for months so I can always say like whenever something happens like I used to love to run and I stepped outside my front door and twisted I'll say twisted the shit out of my ankle I really hurt my ankle and I have not been able to uh take my sneakers and go run it's just not working I I would need surgery and I like to pretend that maybe I would get hit by a truck or something and I the fate saved me you know I was gonna end up in a bad place if I continued but I'm just going to assume that, you know, at some point I will find a way to see these paintings. I'll just have to make more of an effort. They do still exist. And I get to just maybe make um like like I did the Piero tour that we talked about a few years ago. I can we can do a uh, Van Eyck tour and travel around. See them one by one as opposed to all in one show. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I, I'm really interested because obviously Van Eyck is such a seminal painter in the his, history of painting because he was there sort of right at the start of oil painting, didn't invent it, but certainly took it to a new level. So 
does he have a particular personal significance to you or do, or is it or is it that sort of emblematic um position at the start of painting as if you like yeah i mean i i just they're just such miracles and i think you know the the, the there's an online uh tour of this of of the exhibition um that i watched with the curator i guess and he talk, he kept talking about how uh, van eyck's peers were dazzled and totally uh, wowed by these paintings. And it's amazing to me that no one ever figured out how to do it since then. You know, those are unique objects. I don't dare think I would make an attempt to make a a painting of that sort. It's such a whole gestalt of experience and personality and um, history that goes into being that person. And the fact that that person has not ever existed even remotely again. I did read in this uh, book that I love on color called um, Color and Meaning. Uh, it's about, it's Marsha Hall's, uh, Marsha C. Hall's, a book that I talk about, but you cannot buy it. I wish some publisher would reissue it. It would sell out a second run or a third run. But um, I actually have it in the other room, and I sat down and reread her description of Van Eyck's color and her, his process. And, you know, it's so it's so important the way he built up a painting, but it still doesn't explain, like, I can read about that and try to imitate it. But I actually believe that people like him and Raphael, which are on a similar mysterious plane, and I won't even say, you know, these are the greatest painters uh, for very different reasons, but they're, you know, mysterious and, and, and extraordinary painters that have never been repeated I just think that it's so much a kind of um, their personality is so much driving and their belief in, in what they were painting. I think the fact that they were probably both religious men and really believed in what they were doing um, and they were working, I mean, the Annunciation paintings, you know, I think they really believed that they were, they were really selling that story and they really believed in that story. I mean, with someone like Raphael, you can see his, I always like to say that you, if you're not a genuinely good person, in you know you don't have a good heart, you could not make those paintings because there's such love in those paintings. That's really true, and there is such commitment and love in in the in the Van Eyck's, aren't there? This that that extraordinary attention to detail and that the, just the sheer innovation in in so much of what he was doing. That it, there is that sort of total laying bare everything for for the sake of these things. It fascinates me that it's just you know. You, there is no nothing that came after that that was like ex, you know nobody did it again, <laughs> which is um, strange in a way. You know you would think that there, that he'd have like a whole lot of ac- uh, students or acolytes, but you know I don't know his history as well as I know other people's history. Some of the greatest paintings outside of Italy were made in that area, and when you see something like that. You just think maybe there is something in the soil or on the axis of the planet in relationship to the sun that makes something like that special, you know? And um, there is something like the, the, the kind of things that have come out of that location. I was just really super curious to be able to sort of experience it with living painters and through their eyes as well. As I said, I took a um, trip once to Leipzig and was um, very sweetly given... Um, the um, Neo Rauch and his and his wife Rosa Loy put us up at their house and made us dinner and took us around Leipzig and showed us their Leipzig and the, where the studios were and 
I, I was very absorbed in how I would see things that I could that that they weren't pointing out that also were obvious things that have influenced their work. So this, so I really think it's a one of the great ways to experience art is to go to the location where it was made. Yeah, and that, you talked about that Piero piece that, that we did a, a few years ago, where you told me you went on this Piero tour and you learnt so much more. You'd loved Piero before that, but suddenly learnt so much more about him and somehow got the paintings all the more through being in that place where he lived and worked. Yeah, and also the the, the painters become so much more human because there's a kind of way that you understand what the went in into their bodies and their beings it, it it brings you closer to them i would say um there is a i love the camaraderie of of painters and artists and and i do th- i do feel sometimes that there is a camaraderie that you can have with artists that are long gone Well, thanks for talking to us about this, Lisa, and I hope you have that epiphany when you do finally see them. Thank you very much. Look forward to talking to you again. Lisa's exhibition, Wilderness, was due to be on at the Aspen Art Museum until the 31st of May. Do check with the museum for any future announcements. And you can see the virtual tour of the Van Eyck show that Lisa mentioned at mskgent.be. That's mskgent.be. And that's it for this week. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Telegram. You can find the Telegram invite code at the top of our newsletters. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. Thanks to Adam, Sophie and Lisa and thank you for listening. Bye for now. Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.